You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Dr. Bill Smith, a member of our teaching team, as he continues our series called Meeting Jesus. Good morning. Looks like an unusually large number of adults went with the kids today for some reason. Couldn't be the party, could it? Okay. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you now, we come before you acknowledging that you are awesome, that you are holy, and you are kind and loving and compassionate. And if it were not for you, we would not be able to understand one word of Scripture. So we come before you, Father, hoping with expectation, anticipation, that you would show us something about yourself today we haven't seen before. And you would show us something about ourselves that we have not known before. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray and for his sake. Amen and amen. So today we're going to continue on part two of a two-part series on meeting Jesus. Their encounter with the Messiah changed everything. And we're going to take a look at two more widows. Last week we looked at Anna the prophetess. And we looked at the things that she taught us. Today we're going to take a look at the poor widow, or the one we think of as the one who put two mites into the offering. And we're also going to take a look at the grieving widow. And as we are always want to do, is to take a look at the context of this widow, the poor widow, I want to talk about first. And I see her context coming out of Luke 20. So she's talked about in Luke 21, but in Luke 20... As I covered last week, Jesus is challenged. The scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees come around while he's teaching uh, his disciples and teaching other people. And the first thing they challenge is his authority. See, he's gathered a great crowd around him in the temple. I- I'm guessing probably bigger crowds than what they were gathering. So, something's not right. Scott is in the wrong seat here. This doesn't make sense here. Okay, come early next week so we can get to... <laughs> We'll see, this is an act of faith for you to sit up here. Okay. <clears throat> so they challenged his authority, asking him, where do you get this authority to do the things that you're doing? And of course, being a rabbi, the rabbis would answer questions with questions. If you're being taught by a rabbi, he'd ask you a question. You needed to answer his question with a question to show that you've studied scripture. So he asks them a question. Well, where did John the Baptist get his authority? And of course, that puts them in a quandary because they realize if they say, well, he gets it from man, then all the people there who believe John the Baptist was the prophet would have revolted against them. So they can't say that. Then, of course, if they say, well, he got his authority from God, then Jesus would say, then why weren't you out there? Why didn't you believe in him? So the very trap that they set for him, they get caught in themselves. And so then he tells a, ter- a parable to all those listening, about a landowner who has uh, tenants or renters. And even back then, I guess, apparently renters were a problem, as they can be today. And when the landowner who went away sent one of his servants to collect the, the rent, uh, they beat that servant up. So he sends another servant, and they beat that servant up even more harshly. So he says, well, I'll send my own son. Surely they wouldn't harm my own son. And, of course, what the evil tenants did was they did more than harm him. They killed him, thinking that they would therefore inherit that land. And uh, to give a little bit of credit to the Pharisees and the scribes, they figured out who he was talking about. He was talking about them. And of course, they get insulted, and now they're going to try to find ways to arrest him. And then they sent him some spies, probably people of their same 
same class, but probably dressed a little bit differently and asking questions as, as though they were sincerely interested in learning something from him. And they ask him about taxes, one of those touchy subjects. As soon as we get around money, things get a little bit interesting when we talk about that topic. And, of course, this idea of having to pay taxes to the Roman Empire was still sticking in the crawl of the Jewish people. And so, of course, they ask him about that, and being the rabbi he was, he responds with a question. And he asks them, well, whose image and inscription are on that coin? So they find the coin, and they say, of course, it's Caesar's. And so he says simply to them, then give to Caesar those things that are Caesar's, but give the things that are God's to God. Now, this is going to play a role here in a minute when we talk about the poor widow. Of course, I was thinking about that just this morning. If we look on our coins, it says United States of America, but it also says in God we trust. So I'm going to call the IRS and figure out who does this go to. <laughs> so then Jesus, then they ask him another question. Now this is the uh, Sadducees. They step in and they're going to ask him a question. They say, what about the law that Moses wrote for us? And that law had to deal with widows. And if a woman became a widow, Moses' law was in order to take care of that widow, his, that man who died, his brother, had to step up and marry her. But what if he died? And then the next brother, and so on. And so we have a situation where we have one bride for seven brothers. What's going to happen then? What's going to happen in the resurrection? Whose wife will she be? Now, if you know anything about the Sadducees, which Jesus would know a lot about them, they were not really asking about widows and marrying. They were asking about the resurrection. You see, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, a life after death. And that's why they were sad, you see. That's how we remember that. In fact, you know about... It's the first time you've heard this joke? (laughs) That's how I remember who the Sadducees were. Uh, You can almost see if you understand their position and what they've inherited and the wealth they have. They really don't want there to be a life after death because they got it made now. Why would we want something else and have to worry about that? And so they're questioning that. So Jesus says, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. In the Amplified Bible, that phrase is considered worthy to gain that other world and that future age. So he's alluding to there's these two worlds, at least, right? There's this world and there's this other world that you know really nothing about. But since you brought that up, I'm going to take over and ask you some questions. Since we're starting to talk about sort of these mystical kind of things and there's two different worlds, let me ask you a question. Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How, can, how then can he be his son? So not only these two different worlds, but apparently time is different in these two worlds. And this is one of the, every once in a while I get this thinking about heaven outside of time. Eternity isn't an extension screwed onto the end of your life. Eternity is entering in a place where there is no time. Think about that for a few minutes and your head explodes. The idea there is no time there. And so you want to bring up this idea of resurrection? I'll bring up the idea of time. You don't really understand what's going on here. So they shut up. They finally stopped talking to him. And then he tells his disciples so that everyone else can hear. And we read this last week. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love to be greeted, love to be honored. We read this last week. 
Scribes are a little different than Pharisees and Sadducees. Anyone could apply to become a scribe. The application process was quite torturous. I think getting into law school was difficult. <laughs> Becoming a scribe was extremely difficult to do. So merchants, uh, laborers, anybody who wanted to apply to become a scribe, which means they're going to be tested on the law to the nth degree, could become that. If they became that, well, then they're looked at as a very special class of people, highly honored. Like, I guess the analogy today might be the doctors and lawyers and accountants, or whoever we think of as, wow, they went to all that school, that kind of thing, right? And so the scribes are somebody who, who could be of any class of people, and they have the long robes, and when they would walk by, people would literally stand up just to honor them. Wow, these people really studied God's word. They're special folks. Jesus echoes this in Matthew 6 when he talks about practicing our righteousness. It's something that you ever notice this when you're reading scripture, you blow by phrases very quickly, but then when you go back to study, something jumps out at you. To practice your righteousness, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, so to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, They have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So this passage is quite interesting because we were just talking about this current age or this world and this other world. And there's something that's going to happen in this other world with regard to being rewarded. There's several judgments in the scriptures. In fact, we might want to do a series on the various judgments in Scripture because there's more than one throne of judgment that's talked about. And one of those is going to be a judgment of the believer's works and there's going to be rewards of some sort. And what he's saying here is the moment you get the honor, the accolades from the world, automatically in the other world, it's taken away. It's not going to happen. And so what might happen to some of us, I hope to none of us, but we might offer, well, I did this and that, and God's going to say, yeah, and these people, you made a point to let them know about it, so you already got your reward. You could have had this, but that's not going to come to you now because you already received your compensation for that reward. It reminds me of this song we heard years ago by a group called Kaylee Rain. Went to listen to them. Friends of mine, Christian friends, took us to see them at the Ram's Head and really enjoyed the music, this Celtic music. But I started to listen to the words, and I leaned over to my friend, and I go, is this a Christian band here? <laughs> because they were talking about these messages, and one of the songs was, this guy goes to heaven, and when he sees the shack that he gets to live in, he asks, what's the deal here? And they re- the angels respond, well, that's all the lumber you sent. <laughs> so that's all you get. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what this is talking about here, is every time we do something in secret, there's some more lumbers and maybe even, maybe even oak instead of pine, right? So then enters the poor widow. So we walk right into Luke 21 after all this has been talked about, about what you do in public versus private and, and giving and all these kind of things and being honored. And it says in Luke 21, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Probably pretty easy to notice that. Right, the rich giving and making a big show of it. Then he sees a poor widow put in two very small copper coins, about the equivalent of about two cents. And he says, truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. 
Now, in case there's anybody here who's thinking, oh, no, is this going to be one of those sermons about we need to give more money? No, that's not what this is going to be about. <laughs> but this is going to be about something slightly different than that. See, see money, money is just, it's just energy. It's just a resource. We make too big of a deal of it. That, that's, that's why I like the way we treat it here at this church. My new friend, Ken Terry, back there after the service came up to me, pulled me aside. He says, um, they, they didn't pass the basket. Did they forget to do that or what's going on here? He was desperate to find out how he can participate in that important opportunity to give. I said, no, it's over there by the door. They didn't, have, they didn't pass the basket in the temple. I said, we're Jewish here, by the way, in case you haven't picked up on that. <laughs> you want to give, it's over there. We just don't make a big, big show of that, except when it's missionary time, that's different. And so Jesus notices this, and she changes everything. Everything changes here, because how people thought of giving is completely different now. She gives the least amount in this world, but Jesus says, but in this other world, she's given the most amount. So we see the introduction of God's economy is different than the world. See, the widow knows something we don't know. <laughs> She knows something that we're not aware of, that she's aware of. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's one of the things that she's aware of. She's also aware of Deuteronomy 26. Remember, we took a look at this last week. And I'm not going to read through all this because I want to highlight this negotiation in here, the quid pro quo if then. He says, if you have done this, in other words... If you've finished setting aside the tenth of all your produce, and if you read that in detail, it's saying if you want to give an offering, first you have to give the tithe. Then you can give an offering. It says if you do that, then what you get in return is a land flowing with milk and honey. So whenever we give to God, the way he gives back is always disproportionate to what we give him. Again, I, I really would like to have him take my negotiation skills course because it's always lopsided to his detriment. We give a little... He gives back way more than what we give. It reminded me of this old routine by a group uh, called Abbott and Costello. Some of you younger people don't know who they are, but some of us or more seasoned people remember them. You might remember this routine they did. Something's not right here. (laughs) I'm trying to count this up. We give to God this little bit, and he gives us all this back. So when we take a look at Matthew 13... Jesus tells a story about the, the, the parable of the sower. Most people are familiar with this story, but it is God's word. So I'm going to read through this. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And what you'll notice is any time when you're reading about, about Jesus and there's great crowds, you can guess that he's more towards the end of his ministry than the earlier part because everybody's following him now. And he told, them a, a many, he told them many things in parables and stories saying, listen, a sower went out to, the, to sow and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty. Some 30. Let anyone with ears listen. And he explains later to the disciples what these parables mean about this idea of God's economy, of investing in something. God's return is much bigger than what we give him. Do you have one-tenth for threefold? <laughs> it's sort of the Abbott and Costello routine here. When we take a look at this word fold, fold is not percent or times. Fold is a little bit different than that. 
So if I fold something once, let me see if I got any money in here. Yeah, I happen to have a five. So if I take this five and I fold it one time, I now have two. But if I fold it again and I count that up, I'll have four. You can see four. If I fold it yet again, I would have eight. So fold is not times or percent. Let me make sure I put my wallet back in here before I forget that. Money is so important to me. Um, how about two mites for one fold? If she just got back one fold, she'd get back twice the amount of money. It's a 200% interest of return. And so if we take a look at 30-fold, and you did the math, it'd come up to, what's that, like one trillion, something like that? I don't know, billion. That's one billion. Uh, 60-fold, that turns out to one... And uh, 100-fold is that number. I looked that up, what that means there. It's one million, two hundred, one octillion, sixty-four septillion, and it goes on and on. God's economy is different than our economy. He wants us to trust him. Whenever we look at the schedule and see that not much work is scheduled for the next month or two, I always respond with this, with this thought out loud and I make a declaration. I'm not worried about it. My father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't worry about money anymore. I get slightly concerned about it from time to time, but I'm not trusting in money. I'm trusting in the Lord. See, the poor widow was a wise investor, wasn't she? When Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have their, of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Remember who's coming to him, a scribe. He had an impact even on the people who had it made. They had a sense that there's something more than what I think I've got it made with. And so Jesus is telling this scribe, just so you know, if you come follow me, you're used to living a certain lifestyle, but I don't have anything. I don't have a house. I don't have a car. I don't have an income. I have nothing to give you. So you want to follow me and live like me? You're going to be in a whole different world because I'm not trusting in those things of the world. I'm trusting in my father. You see, the poor widow chose to live like Jesus. She chose to walk in faith. We use the words faith and belief sort of interchangeably. Even the scripture does that. If you look at translations, these words get interchanged. They're both from the same root, Greek root, pistis, from the Greek. But the word faith is pistebo, which is the verb form of the noun pistis. So this word faith in scripture has to do with action, has to do with putting trust in or to entrust or to commit to or to count on or to rely upon something. The word belief is this word pistevu, which is to be persuaded or to be convinced. So just to believe something is one thing, but it's not always necessarily enough. In fact, in James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. But you know what? So do the demons. The demons also believe and they shudder. But it doesn't get them saved. So just believing is one thing. Having faith is another thing. You know, there's an aspect of Christianity that, says, that suggests we should be closed-minded. And, you know, the world often accuses us of this, that they're closed-minded. But, you know, actually we should be with respect to our belief. To a certain extent, we should be closed-minded about certain things. I'm not moving on that at all. So we take a look at this here. I was raised in the Episcopal Church, which are the Catholics who can't speak Latin. 
And I realized that the first time I went to a Catholic service, I'm like, the difference would be what? It's pretty much the same thing. And we used to say this every week. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven. We used to rush through this thing, especially God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten. I mean, we had this nailed. Did you guys do the same thing? Yeah. And I was looking at this again this week, studying it with regard to faith and belief, and this is a statement of belief. When I looked at this again, there's nothing in there about what we're going to do. It's all about what we believe, and it was really important that we all believe the same thing. <laughs> and so I had this memorized, but I don't know if that necessarily prompted me to do anything, but I was, I was in. I was on the inside because I say this every week. It's being said in churches all around the country today. But there's another aspect of Christianity which suggests we should be open-minded. And that, should, that would be true especially with regard to our faith. Just like Scott was open-minded enough to sit in another seat this morning. Okay? It's an act of faith. Jesus taught us this in the garden, didn't he? When he said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. With regard to his belief about who his father was, he's very closed-minded. But with regard to how things are going to happen, he was very open-minded. So we look at belief in terms of having a closed belief system versus open, and this is somewhat simplistic, but a closed approach to belief would be Jesus is the only path. That's what we say as Christians, and, and I'm not moving on that. A more open-minded approach to belief would be, well, there's really many paths to God. The Buddha and all those other people can also get you to God, but that's not what the Bible says. With regard to faith, a closed-minded approach to, to faith would be, God, here's what I need to do, I, need, I want you to do and how I need you to do it. Telling God how things are going to work. You ever catch yourself praying that way? I do. Every once in a while I'm like, I know you're probably busy, you probably haven't noticed this situation right here, but let me tell you all about it, what's been going on, and then here's what you're going to need to do. <laughs> and then in the middle of that I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, poor God, he's so busy, he's probably tired, and he doesn't know how to solve stuff, and so I come at him from a closed-minded faith point of view. It has to be my way. The process is important to me. An open-minded approach would be more of, here's maybe the result I'm praying for. The process is up to you. And you know, Lord, the more I pray even about the process, I'm even open about the result now. That's moving us to an open-minded view about faith, but I'm still closed-minded about what I believe. Another version of that might be, God loves everyone. That's what the Bible says. For God so loved the world. The open belief about that, therefore, everybody's going to be saved because he loves everybody. The Bible doesn't teach that. I wish it did. I wish it taught that. But it doesn't teach that. A closed-minded approach to faith is, God, please show me exactly what you want me to do. Then I will do it. Some of us pray that way from time to time. There's a little bit of a problem with that. And I, I don't want to discourage you. I want you to keep praying. But when you ask God to show you his will of exactly what he wants you to do and then you do it, you're not walking by faith, you're walking by knowledge. It doesn't take any faith to do exactly what God tells you to do. It takes faith to do that when you're not sure exactly what he wants you to do. So what's the open-minded version of that, Bill? God, here's what's going on. I'm going to start taking action. And please feel free to redirect me at any time. I'm listening, and sometimes that might be a two-by-four upside my head to get me moved to another direction, but I'm open and willing to that approach to walking with you and walking in you. I'm open to how this can be happening, but I'm going to take the first move. You know, in negotiation, there's a myth out there that first person who says their number loses. You ever heard that? First person who makes their move loses. 
Well, if that's the case, and it's not the case, the research doesn't bear it out, and the scriptures don't bear it out. And here's how I know. God already made his move. You know what he's waiting for us to do? You make your move. I made my move. What are you going to do? What if, I stop? what if I go in the wrong direction? Don't worry. I'll redirect you over here. See, a boat that's moving is easier to turn than a boat that's sitting still, isn't it? If you're sitting still waiting, you're probably going to wait for a long time. <laughs> time to start moving forward in the Lord. I also look at this another way. There's a relationship really between the two, isn't there? Acting in faith, I do a, there's a few things I trust in the Lord, or there's a lot of things I trust in the Lord. And on this scale... I like models. There's some people who don't like them. I like models. See how Scott's leaned forward? He loves models. He's going to beat this up. <laughs> it's just for Scott. The rest of you can just close your eyes. <laughs> on this scale down here is building on belief, what we believe and why we believe it, knowing more and more about God. So we have uh, down here in the left-hand corner people who know very little about God and act very infrequently on faith. And I, I, I lovingly refer to them as the spectators. <laughs> in the church, is they come and they watch, and it's interesting, and they might be a little inspired. Then we get folks down here who spend their whole time trying to learn more and more about what they believe and refine what they believe, and they start writing catechisms and confessions in Westminster and all these kind of things. And that's what they spend a lot of their time doing, and that's always their focus. I'm not judging, I'm just saying, I've seen this, I've been in churches where that was always the goal, to keep refining and lots of studying and all this. Very little talk about allowing the Holy Spirit into your life and, and redirecting you. And so they became clanging symbols, and that really became the club. Is you, the more you know, the more you're up in the club or something like that. And we see this in Jesus' time, right, with the Pharisees, Sadducees, the same kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about, Steve, right? We were in that same church. <laughs> up here we have people on fire for the Lord. But that can turn into, can turn into things like legalism and cults. And the problem is there is a lot of faith, but not really growing in their knowledge of him in whom they have their faith. And so if you're on fire for the Lord too long and you never really spend time building your belief, you actually burn out. Up here is our goal, to be constantly growing so that we're people of faith, but people also of him in whom we have our knowledge, so that we become also like the poor widow. I could think of it also like this. It starts out here, and we go a little bit in our knowledge of God, and that allows us to trust him on some things. And as we trust him, we learn he's trustworthy, which causes us to want to know even more about him, and so we, then we can act some more. So this is really something they build on each other. If I was really good at drawing, I would draw a double helix, <laughs> that they're related to each other, okay? That the moment we trust God one time on maybe something small, we learn something about him and our belief grows. And as our belief grows, we find more about him. So I'm going to trust him on something else, something a little bit more difficult to trust him on. Sorry about this. Now I'm going to run into it. So these things are interacting with each other. And it really puts us on a journey. And the journey that I call this is the journey of love, to be in a relationship with God. And I did all that drilling just to impress Justin. <laughs> you like that, right? <laughs> if we look at uh, faith from Hebrews 11, which is called the Hall of Faith, we see these ten men and one woman mentioned, and also the prophets and so on. And we read in the sixth verse 
that if you want to please God, then the only way you can do that is through faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So one of the things you would notice if you studied all those people is none of them were, con- were commended for what a great theology they developed. They were all commended for what they did. So apparently it's, a, it's a possible to impress God. That may sound weird to say that, but there's evidence in Scripture like with a centurion who approaches Jesus asking for him to heal a servant. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come. And he says, you don't need to come. I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. All you need to do is say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus responds with amazement. This is God himself being amazed at a human being. And he says, I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. So you see when the poor widow approaches and she puts all that she has. I think, and I can't back this up with scripture, but this is just my thought on this. I think as she approached, I think the Holy Spirit moved in him and said, here comes one like you, who's completely trusting the Father. And he says, she's given the most. I I would imagine her reward in heaven is going to be, well, we'll see her mansion, right? It's going to be impressive because she's completely trusting God. So the poor widow teaches us how to give, but she also teaches us how to live. And then there's the grieving widow. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. So I want to highlight, this is the only son of his mother. So from what we understand and know about widows in that time, if it's her only son, what's that mean to her with regard to her future and her income and her welfare? It's gone away. So she's crying for at least two reasons. Lost her son, but she also lost her provision, her income, her revenue. When I think about this scene, there's a great crowd with Jesus. There's a great crowd with her. There's two great crowds coming together. Whenever we think about Jesus raising someone from the dead, what name comes to our mind? Lazarus. Here's another one right here. And also, it says, he had compassion on her. Remember the word compassion, passion and C-O-M, alongside of. Passion means to suffer, C-O-M, alongside of. So it doesn't say Jesus felt sorry for her. He actually was suffering with her, alongside of her. And that moves him to respond to her life and to her situation she doesn't even pray she doesn't even ask and so when we when we see this passage it takes me back to exodus 22 again where it says if any widow is afflicted and they cry at all to me they cry at all to me then i will hear their voice and i'm going to take action but she didn't even know how to pray So as we take a look at the widow Anna, and she teaches us to hope, to stay close to God, to worship continually, to fast, to pray without ceasing, and to tell people about Jesus. The poor widow teaches us to rely completely on God. Stop worrying about money. It's just a resource. 
know God's promises and act on those promises as though they're really true, as though he can really be dependent upon because it's impossible to impress God. And then the grieving widow teaches us that God hears us when, he, when we cry. He cares and he will take action. When I think about that, he hears us when we cry, even when we don't know how to pray. I, I think about uh, a while back when, when Julie was sharing with us about little baby, baby Joseph. And she shared with us that she was so heartbroken. She didn't even know how to pray. Now, many of us in here know Julie. This is a woman of God. She's trained in the word of God. She's superb at praying. But she didn't even know how to pray. She just cried. And I'm guessing about a week ago or so, you didn't have to pray either, did you? You just cried and cried and cried. And the scriptures tell us that God hears that. So it reminds me of this song, the words, I'll just tell you the words because I started singing this morning and Steve asked me not to sing today. But the words go like this. All things work for our good. Though sometimes it doesn't seem like they could. Troubles that break our hearts in two can blind us to the truth. And that truth is that our God knows what's best for us. But his ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim and you just can't see him, remember, you're not alone. For God is too wise to be mistaken and God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand and when you can't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. So as the music team comes forward, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the widows. We thank you for the way you continue to show us how amazing you are using those who are most desperate, those who are most weak, those who are most dependent, to teach us how to live and how to relate to you. Father, I pray you would apply these lessons into our lives so that we would become people who seek to know you more and more and also seek to act and trust upon you more and more for everything in our lives. We're all at a certain place where we've learned to trust you in some things. Help us to grow in that ability to continue to step out in faith, for we are completely open to you redirecting our paths. We love you, we adore you, we know that you love us, we receive that love into our lives. For in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.